Well, I've always been a little bit of a nerd, at least in one way, and that is that I like numbers, especially when they help explain something or prove or disprove something I've always wondered about. When I was in college, I was introduced to sabermetrics. Do you know what sabermetrics is? It is the empirical analysis of baseball. And if it sounds familiar, those of you who've seen the movie Moneyball, this is one of the, the sub-themes. Sabermetrics is a science of sorts pioneered by a man named Bill James. And I have a loose connection to Bill James. I, I don't actually know him personally, but he lived just a few blocks from me when I was a student at the University of Kansas. And Bill James pioneered this research into the statistical analysis of baseball, and I was one of his first readers. James developed a number of novel statistics that went well beyond batting average and ERA to explain what made one player better than another and what made teams better than other teams. Eventually, he attracted the attention of Major League Baseball executives. He was hired, I think, about 15 years ago by the Boston Red Sox and was there for three world championships. His work on baseball attracted imitators, and so pretty soon, statisticians, geeks, started to analyze other sports as well. So they started looking at football and basketball and even soccer. And a couple of years ago, two analysts published a book about soccer analytics, and in it, they argued that teams have been thinking about building rosters in all the wrong ways. Now, they compared soccer to basketball, not because the games are similar, but because they are very different. So basketball, they concluded, is a superstar sport. So if you're a general manager of a basketball team, your job is to find one or two superstars that will make your team dramatically better. That's why the Cleveland Cavaliers won 20 more games the season after they signed LeBron James than they did before. And the same two seasons, the Miami Heat lost 17 more games the year after LeBron James left them. But soccer, it turns out, is different. It is what they called a weakest link sport. To build a team for success, owners should look less at trying to find a superstar and more at trying to fix their weakest links. In other words, the fastest way to improve a soccer team is not to sign Lionel Messi to millions, a million dollar, millions and millions of dollars for a contract, but to sign two or three average players to replace the weakest players on your team. So now I know what you're thinking. What in the world do uh, sabermetrics and soccer have to do with Ephesians chapter 4? Well, by the end of the day, I hope to show you that the church is more like a soccer team than a basketball team. It's not a superstar-driven organization, but a weakest link um, sport. Before we get to that, though, I want to cover some, of, some more ideas. We're making our way through a letter that Paul wrote to a region of the world. It's called Ephesians. That was just one of the towns that the letter went to. And he, while he didn't have a lot of relationships with these folks, he wanted to cover some important topics, and he does so in a very condensed fashion. And chapter 4 marks a transition in what he talks about. He moves in chapters 1 through 3 and from the abstract and the conceptual to 4 through 6 to more practical topics. Now, the big ideas that we're going to talk about today that Paul uh, addresses are unique, united, and mature, and they're all woven throughout the section, so they're not all in order. And I'm going to start with the word mature, which actually appears at the beginning and the end of the text, and uh, we're going to look at what it means for someone to be mature. Now, it isn't in the first couple of verses, the term, but the concept is. So Noel's already read for us the text, but I want to go back to verse 1. By the way, if you want to follow along in a pew Bible, it's on page 1778 in your pew Bible. But we're going to read just from the first couple of verses in chapter 4. Here's what he says. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then he tells them what a life that is worthy of the calling looks like. He says, be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Now, at the end of this whole section that we'll look at today, he's going to challenge them to grow from immaturity to maturity. And here he, he uh, identifies, mentions three character qualities that reflect maturity, humility, gentleness, and patience. And if we had more time, we would go through each one of these. But overall, the message here is simple, to be to mature, to live lives of integrity, and to live out what we believe in our daily life. Now, just a little social commentary here. I think we've often got this backwards today. Instead of valuing integrity, we make excuses for ourselves. Oops, sorry, my bad. Um, or we make excuses for others. Oh, you know, no one's perfect. So instead of holding others to high standards and holding ourselves to high standards, we give people a free pass in the event sometimes that we too, if we mess up someday, we'll get a little slack. What troubles me is when I hear leaders in all sorts of industries, all sorts of places and spheres of life, and other people excusing the misbehavior of these same officials by mentioning, say, David in the Old Testament, and saying, well, he sinned in similar ways, and he was okay. What we forget is that the Bible considered David's actions a tragedy, and the consequences for David himself, for his family, and for the nation were disastrous. That's not to say that there isn't forgiveness. But at some level, these sorts of misdeeds should disqualify people for leadership. The irony is that what used to be that religious people, who are ones who held the highest standards, who said that character mattered in leaders, and now it's people on all sides who say, eh, I'm not so sure. We're not expecting, obviously, executives and coaches and elected officials and entertainers to be saints, but they also should not be scoundrels. Maturity in Christ means living lives worthy of the life God's called us to, to honor him, to make him look good, to inspire others to live lives of honor and virtue. And yes, we're human. Sure, we fail. But that should trouble us. That should make us sad, not lead us to make excuses that kind of rush to the lowest common denominator. And I think this is a big deal. We need to take seriously how we live our lives, doing all we can to live our lives in a manner that makes God look good in a world that cares little about God. That brings us then to the second word for today, and that's the word united. Now, we talked about this at length last week, so I won't spend as much time here today. But the fact that Paul mentions it in chapter 3 and chapter 4 shows that this is a passion for him. You'll see the words on the screen from uh, verses 3 through 6, and I want to point out just one phrase that I think shows you how important this is. And that's where Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort, he says. Unity so important to Paul that he says, don't give up. Give it your all. Even if getting along with others is difficult, make it a priority to get along. I used to do some consulting with churches, probably did 30 or 35 consulting projects over about a five-year period. And several of the churches that I met with were deeply conflicted organizations. And some of them, that conflict dated back a decade or more. Paul says, Let's not have any of that. Let's be united. Let's be at peace. Let's find a way to unify in Christ. Now, there's two details in this long list that I do want to point out. I think they're important. And the first is, Paul says, one Lord. And we read that, and we sort of gloss right over it, thinking, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the earliest listeners would have read something different in what Paul said. And that's because the emperor of the Roman Empire was considered Lord. And that wasn't just kind of the way that Brits will uh, uh, honor a really significant individual in British life by calling them a lord. Um, this is the, uh, implies divinity. So by calling someone else lord, it's not like saying sir or my lord. It's calling Caesar someone who is similar to a god. 
The early Christians refused to call Caesar Lord, and some of them, by that refusal, lost their lives. The early Christians believed that only one person could be called Lord, and that was Jesus. The second detail here is when he refers to one faith. This refers to the content of our faith. So when some people ask me what we believe here at City Church, the best summary is we um, affirm historic Christian faith. In other words, the common faith and behavior that Christians have upheld through the centuries. Now, it doesn't mean that every generation blindly accepts what has been passed down to them, but it is to say that we believe that innovation should never be taken lightly, that the traditions of the church, to the degree that they conform to the pattern of the Bible, should shape our understanding of faith, that we need to be united in our commitment to that one faith. Now, unity is hard work. Paul says, keep at it, don't grow weary, don't give up, it's God's work. In verse 7, Paul shifts to the third key word for today, and that's the word unique. And he begins this way in verse 7. He says, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, the word grace here could also be translated as gift. The two words overlapped. Grace is a gift, a gift is grace. And he's telling us that each one of us have some kind of gift that we are able to use. Now, here's the basics. You may have heard of the concept of spiritual gifts. If you haven't, let me just give a little overview of what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. And the first truth is that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift, kind of a spirit-enabled ability, a job, something unique that each one of us can do. Sometimes these are related to natural abilities that we may have developed before we come to faith or begin growing in faith. Sometimes they emerge after, and sometimes they even surprise us. These gifts are diverse. There are four different lists of gifts in the New Testament, and each list is different, and it's pretty clear from the way that they're shared that they're just illustrative, not exhaustive. There are probably other gifts that aren't even listed in those four lists, but they fall into three clusters, roughly. There are communication gifts, there are caring gifts, and there are leadership gifts. And roughly all of them fit into one of those three categories. And it's here that Paul gives five different gifts that he wants them to be mindful of. So in verse 11, he says, Christ gave himself, gave us apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, again, if you look at the other lists, which are in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, along with Ephesians 4, you'll see great diversity. So my conclusion here is that each one of us are unique and that we need all the gifts in order for the church to function properly. Now, In Ephesians, Paul explains the purpose for the gifts. And just a spoiler alert, it isn't all about you. Years ago, someone came to see me in our early years here at City Church, and she told me right off the bat, she said, I have XYZ gift, um, and then uh, said, how can I use it here at City Church? And then before I had a chance to say anything, she just rolled into how she thought she ought to be used in the church. And the problem was, we kind of had those things covered. We had other people who were functioning in those roles. So I made some alternative suggestions. Well, maybe you could do this or that. And she got angry and stormed off and about a year or so later left the church and said, well, John wouldn't let me use my gift. Now, the point is not that she didn't have that gift or that there wouldn't have been ways to use it. It's that she thought the gift was hers. She didn't understand what Paul is saying here is that the gifts are given to the church and need to be used in that way. So how are these gifts to be used? Let's listen to what Paul says in verse 12. He says, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So the goal here is that we each use our unique gifts 
not to make us happy or to find our self-esteem in things that we do better than others, but to use these gifts to equip others so that they can do the things that God wants us to do and so that the entire church will be built up and be stronger. Paul is saying here something that is a misconception about churches, and that is that ministry staff, those who get paid, are the ones who do all the ministry. That's actually not true. Sure, as staff, we do ministry. But it's not our main job. Our main job is to help all of you discover the unique gifts that you have, help equip you and put you in places so that you can do the things that you can do to help this church accomplish what God has for it. Those gifts, in, in turn, will shape who we become. Sometimes I'm asked, you know, when you, all the way 12 and a half years ago, thought about what City Church would look like, is that the way it looks now? And I say, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. There are places where I thought we'd be further along or maybe more developed in one area or another, and there are other things that are a total surprise to me. And much of that has reflected who God has brought here. People's gifts shape the way this church lives out its, its unique life. And every church looks different based on the gifts of the people who are there. Because each of us are unique and have different gifts, Every gift that's here is necessary for the church to function. And the implication here is that we should not be passive, that we all need to be actively involved. Now, it may be times of life and different places and times when you're more engaged or less engaged, but the truth is, is that there are some things that you do that no one else can do, and every gift is necessary. That's why I started today by talking about the church and said it's more like a soccer team than it is a basketball team. You know, basketball is a game where 10,000 people watch 10 men run around or 10 women run around. But soccer requires more teamwork. Now, after the first service, someone said to me, but I thought you liked basketball better than soccer. I do. Basketball is my favorite sport to watch. But as a metaphor, I think soccer works better. And here's another one. When I was at General Mills, um, our plant management team spent a week at a NASCAR event. I think it was largely a boondoggle, but they learned some things while they were there. And one of the things they did is they observed for an afternoon a pit crew practicing. And they discovered that, you know, they knew the goal, get the car in and out as fast as you can. And I know some of you aren't NASCAR fans, but they do it pretty fast. And they uh, discovered, you know, tried to look at how this whole process happens. They were able to uh, meet with the pit crew chief and ask him some questions. And the first question somebody asked him was, how fast can you do this? What's the fastest and, you know, what's, what's a good pit stop? And the crew chief said, well, it depends. It depends on how many tires we put on, how much fuel we add, what it needs to be done. And then he told them a story. He said in the 1950s, in the Indianapolis 500, there were four people allowed to service the car every time it came in, and one of them was the driver. He said pit stops took an average of at least 60 seconds, usually more, and he said, now, in NASCAR, we have a dozen or more participants in that pit crew, and that means that a full pit stop should take under 14 seconds, more like 11 or 12 if you're really functioning well. If you're just adding fuel, he said, that's just two or three seconds, because we know that if a pit crew operates properly, it can mean the difference between winning and losing a race. So our uh, executives, our, our, our manufacturing and uh, research executives looked at how they did these jobs, and they, know, they noticed that everyone knew exactly what they were to do, and if they all worked to perfection, they could take several seconds off the length of a pit stop. You know, in the same way, when the work of the church is carried out by a large team of well-coordinated people, people, outside the people in the church are built up. They find ways to serve others inside and outside the church, and the church functions properly. By the way, that's the last sports analogy I'll use for maybe, what, six or seven weeks. Way too much sports today. I understand that for some of you. But uh, 
I do think they help. At the end of verse 13, Paul adds that when the gifts are used, they make us mature. So again, that word mature, the beginning and end of our, story, our text for today. And he says in verse 13, that we might become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to describe spiritual immaturity in a colorful way. So he starts negative and he'll go positive in a moment. But here's what he says negatively. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. What he's saying here is that if we use our spiritual gifts properly, we'll all become mature. We'll no longer be spiritual babies. Now that term spiritual babies may seem harsh, but what he's getting at here is the idea that when we first come to Christ or begin growing in Christ, we're not full-blown spiritual adults. We need to grow. And what the metaphor tells us is that spiritual babies are not discerning. Instead, they have a tendency to run after this or that religious fashion. So instead of falling for, say, some doctrinal innovation that happens to be trendy at the time, he says we need to stand firm in the faith. I know what some of you are thinking, because maybe you were with us last week when we had a parent-child dedication in our second service. And as an introduction to that dedication, I said that I quoted Jesus saying, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And maybe you know also that Jesus also said, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So are Paul and Peter not on the same page? Well, the answer is they're talking about different qualities. Jesus is saying that we need to resemble children in their humility and innocence. And Paul is saying, but not in their ignorance and instability. So with maturity comes a kind of spiritual stability. So instead of being led astray by something that sounds good but is really false, we need to be careful and become mature. The best way, I think, to become a discerning person is to read the Bible and do it with others. That's two activities. One is spending time with God on a daily basis, and the other is doing it in the context of some kind of group, like a growth group. As I said last week, I know that some of you haven't read the Bible, or maybe you've tried, and if you've tried, you've run into things that seem a little bit odd, or, um, and it can be intimidating, because there are things in the Bible that are a little puzzling, although I think most of the Bible's fairly straightforward. But maybe you're just intimidated by reading the Bible. Well, shameless plug, we've got something just for you. Because in January, we have a four-week class called How to Read the Bible, and it's designed to give you tools and resources to help you learn to read the Bible with greater clarity and to make it a little easier. Again, it's four weeks in January. I hope that many of you will participate. Some of you may make New Year's resolutions, so if your spiritual resolution is to maybe learn to read the Bible, this would be a great way to do that. So we'll have more information next week, but I'd encourage you to sign up. I'd love to see 20, 30, 40 of you take that class. Something else that spiritual babies don't always understand is that not everyone has good motives. Some will try to trick us with lies that are so clever that they sound like the truth. And this is where those in the church who have these discerning and teaching gifts can be helpful to us. That might be in the context of a service or it might be in the context of a growth group or even just a friendship with someone who has more knowledge and wisdom than perhaps you have. What this warning about spiritual immorality, not immortality, tells us about is that we shouldn't be shocked when we see spiritual immaturity. And the truth is, is that especially those new to faith or new to growing in faith, it takes time to grow towards spiritual maturity. That said, don't put up with spiritual immaturity in yourself. Of course, we start as babies. That's the way everything starts. But don't stay there. Don't be complacent. 
Pursue spiritual maturity by asking God to teach you, to change your bad habits and bad attitudes. And whatever you do, don't just say, ah, that's the way I am. Paul ends, though, not negatively but positively by describing spiritual maturity in a positive way in verse 15. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that's Christ. I think the first part of that verse captures the idea of spiritual maturity perhaps best when Paul says, speaking the truth in love. Absolute honesty combined with deep tenderness and love, both held in perfect balance. The truth is, is that truth without love is deadly. But it's equally true that love without truth is deadly as well. Some people love to fight. They hear something that doesn't sound quite right and their noses start twitching and they filled with pride, they flex their muscles, and they march in and, you know, blast away. And others hate to fight. They do all they can to maintain harmony. If they know the truth, um, but know that it's going to be hard for someone to hear, they may soften it or be willing to go so far as to sacrifice truth so as not to offend someone. Both tendencies are unbalanced. One's attractive but false, the other is true but ugly. And each of us lean one way or the other. Some of us are nice and love well, but have a hard time telling the truth. And others are, and and we're so afraid sometimes of making someone mad that we'll pull punches. Others of us are direct and clear, but we tell the truth without love. We love winning arguments. We love to show off how much we know. But even if it feels satisfying to say what's on our minds, We're not effective. In fact, it may be that our behavior is so unattractive that it turns people away. They don't want to listen to the truth. And so we're unpersuasive. In fact, we drive people further away. Truth without love does not accomplish truth. And love without truth does not accomplish love. Unless we have love and truth together, we're immature. I think the best example of truth and love in the Bible is Jesus. The good news about Jesus starts with a very hard truth. And that is that we're sinners, and unless someone pays the penalty for our sins, we're lost eternally. But when Jesus went to the cross, it was as if he was saying, you're lost, you're messed up, you're condemned, and nothing less than my death will satisfy and save you. And that's not a sugar-coated truth, is it? And yet at the same time, equally important, is that is God's extravagant love. Because the very reason Jesus went to the cross is because he loved us. Paul says in Romans 5.8 that while we were still sinners, he says God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means in his death on the cross, Jesus is telling each of us, I love you so much. You're the person of such great worth and value that I was willing to die for you. Unless we see the magnitude of that truth, we'll not see the amazing love that Jesus has for each one of us. And because he loves us, he made us unique. He's given us gifts, gifts we can use that will bring us collectively to maturity, a united church that can change the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, we are loved and deeply valued by you, that you have given us unique gifts. Father, I pray that each one of us will use these gifts in a way that honors you and also helps build up a unified body of Jesus Christ. We would be a church that people know and are, believe is characterized by that kind of unity. And then that we might grow toward maturity. Father, each one of us have areas in our lives in which we are immature. Help us see those. Help us learn together to grow toward maturity. 
and be the kind of people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.